0: Just one service this morning. Do we have another, Emily, do we have another group coming in after this? This is it? That's it? So I can go as long as I want this morning? Good. All right. Turn to Revelation chapter 19. Going to read verses 1 through 9. And then chapter 21, verses 1 through 2. The texts upon which this morning's sermon is based upon. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting. And this is John, the apostle, who's writing and hearing this. Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again, they shouted, Hallelujah, the smoke goes up from her forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who was seated on the throne, and they cried, Amen, Hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne, saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both small and great. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Then the angel said to me, "Write. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. Chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Mount Olympus Presbyterian Church has been here for 50 years, many lives. Been brought to Christ because of this place. Many people have been nurtured, much faith, much love, much hope has been shared here. The word of God has been read, it's been heard, it's been proclaimed. Children have been nurtured, hungry people have been fed, young people have been encouraged. Grieving families have been upheld, songs have been sung, prayers have been lifted up gospel has been shared and demonstrated people and nations far from this place have been touched and helped because of this place from time to time especially last night we need to hear how this church has been vital in people's lives god has moved through mopc but you know 50 years really isn't that much i'm not just saying that because i'm going to turn 50 this year i mean 50 years Fifty years really isn't that much. There are many churches that can claim to be many, many, many years older than we are. And there are churches that are larger in numbers, larger in ministry, much larger. There are hundreds of thousands of churches right now just in this nation alone. There are churches all over the globe. And there have been for centuries. You Think about it. Really, we are just a speck on the entire landscape of the church over the ages. We aren't all of it, not by a long shot. We're just part of it. But we are part of it. One of the most prominent, one of the most poignant images of the church that is found in the New Testament is that of the bride of Christ. The Bible ends with a marriage between the Lamb of God who is Jesus Christ, our Lord, and his bride, his people, the church. And at the end of Revelation, as we read, there is this great worship scene in heaven. And John hears a great multitude, more than he can count in heaven, shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. By the way, Chapter 19 of Revelation is the only time the word hallelujah appears in the New Testament. Go figure. I'm throwing that ad for free today, okay? That's in for free. (laughs) There's worship, there's shouting, there is praise to God who is on the throne because God has finally and decisively ended evil and now he is bringing his kingdom. And evil is personified as this ugly, corrupt, adulterous prostitute She's contrasted with those who belong to the Lamb and are personified as a beautiful, clean, pure bride. And we hear, "Hallelujah!" for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice. Let us be glad. Let us give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Now, guys, Guys, being a bride, I know, is a little hard for us to get. And quite frankly, visualizing some of you in bridal gowns right now isn't doing a lot for me either, but (laughs) you just have to work with me, okay? It's biblical symbolism, okay? Work with me. After God's announcement that the bride is ready, John is commanded to write, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And then later, we hear... That the holy city, the new Jerusalem, we see it coming down out of heaven from God and it says she is prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. That's followed by a voice from the throne proclaiming now the dwelling of God is with people and he will live with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. And God has shown John is shown by the angel, the bride, the wife of the lamb. And this is what it says. And that bride shone with the glory of God. You see, the destiny of the church and all those who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ is marriage to him. God, in his word, sees us as a bride. Not as acquaintances, not just as friends, uh, not subjects, but we are people to whom he wants to be married. God has always viewed his relationship with his people in terms of marriage as a husband and a wife. Consider the words of Isaiah, who said, the Lord said through Isaiah, for your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. The Lord will call you back as if you were a a wife. In Jeremiah, God says this to Israel. I remember the devotion of your youth. How as a bride? You loved me. In Hosea, the Lord says, in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice and love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord. When he taught about the kingdom of heaven. Jesus told parables about a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son, and then he told a parable about ten maidens who were preparing for the bridegroom to come so that they could go out to meet him. John the Baptist, speaking of his role to prepare the people for Christ, said this, that the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. Paul writes to the church of the Corinthians, I promised you to one husband. To Christ. And in Ephesians, Paul writes about marriage and how Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her and and to present. The church to himself as a radiant church, and he uses it to speak of how husbands are to love their wives. You see how God views us. Now, in ancient Jewish engagement ceremonies, the first thing that happened was that the groom would go to the bride's house and buy the bride with a wedding price. That's why it says Christ has purchased us, has bought us with his own blood. It's wedding language. And he's desired this community called the church to be in an intimate, eternal relationship with him. In ancient Jewish uh, betrothals, After the groom purchased uh, his bride, they were considered then legally married, even though they, they did not live together and they were apart. So the church now is in an engagement period as we wait for our groom to come back to us and to come and to get us. And as part of that engagement ceremony, the bride and the groom drank from a cup together kind of a seal of the engagement now do you remember in that upper room when jesus gave the lord's supper to his disciples when he took a cup and he said i want you to drink this this is the cup of the new covenant and what is marriage but a covenant sealed in my blood and then he said jesus said i'm not going to drink this cup again until i drink it with you when we are together in my kingdom Now, Jesus Bride is not necessarily those who come and sit in a building on a church called a church on Sundays. We are no more Christians because we sit in a church building than we would be a car if we sit in a garage. Jesus Bride is those who have heard the voice of God to come out from this world of false lovers and confused loyalty and give ourselves in love and in faithfulness and purity to Christ. So when I speak of church, I mean any and all who believe in Christ as Lord and who trust in him, regardless of ethnicity or tongue or tribe or what the sign, the label is out in front of your church or whether you are Protestant or Orthodox or Roman Catholic. The church is those who commit themselves and trust to Jesus Christ. We are the bride of Christ. And if that's true, then what type of people must we be? I mean, how would you want your fiance? How would you want your spouse to behave and to live and to be towards you? Brides are beautiful. Brides are lovely. They are spectacular in the eyes, certainly of the groom and usually everybody else, too. But you know, the church, the bride of Christ doesn't always look so attractive. It doesn't always look so beautiful, does it? Sometimes we make mistakes. Sometimes we hurt one another. There's conflicts. We come for love. We come for hope. And instead, we get frustration and disappointment and hurt. Bad experiences can abound. And it's become fashionable to beat up on the bride of Christ. Christians are called hypocritical. I mean, our faith is supposedly about love and caring for the least of these and forgiveness and self-sacrifice, and yet sometimes it seems Christians are more hateful and materialistic and vengeful and and no different, really, than anybody else. It's true. One of the greatest challenges to Christianity isn't Jesus, it's Jesus' friends, huh? The writer, Flannery O'Connor, lived for a while alone in New York City. And uh, she went to Mass at a large Catholic church while she was there. And she said, you know, going to church in such a large and impersonal setting has its advantages. She says, you know, it's not such a bad thing sometimes not to have to come into contact with people when you come to church. She says it's easier not to deal with people. And she said, although you see a lot of people you wish you knew, you see thousands that you're glad you don't know. (laughs) Sometimes the church is a less than beautiful thing. But this is the thing that most people miss. The church was never pure. Read the letters of the New Testament, and you find problematic, sometimes unattractive communities of faith the church was founded as, the church continues to be a society of self-acknowledged sinners. It's the community of those who stand up and say, I'm wrong before God and I'm wrong before others. And I make no excuses about that. I admit I need God to change me, to redeem me, to make me a different person, and that he sent his son to do this for me. We've gotten into trouble by making churches places where we think we have it all together or that we're actually better than everybody else actually actually we're worse that's my thesis we're worse Uh, another literary figure the English writer Evelyn Waugh he was once asked how could he be a Christian and still be so mean and unloving and he answered just think how much worse I would be if I were not a Christian You know, the secular, non-church-going world had better be glad that we go inside these buildings called church every week and we hear about God and and who he is and what he wants of us. Uh, Maybe God has us here not because we are some of the best people, but we are those who need the most help. I've often thought God made me a pastor as a way of kind of chaining him to myself because if, if I wasn't, I could just see myself being deadly. Uh, I sometimes imagine what I would be if I wasn't imprisoned by this call and what I see is not pretty. I have a mean streak in me that God's spirit has calmed. I have selfishness that God's spirit makes me aware of. I have ugliness that only God's mercy can transform. Now, it could be that all of us in churches would be doing a lot of damage to people and other things if it wasn't for God getting a hold of us and reminding ourselves each week of how he wants us to live. So, you know, everyone outside the church who thinks that we are just wasting our time or living in some kind of spiritual fantasy should be glad, better darn, be darn glad that we come here because if not, we might go out and tear them up and everything else too. Church is not a place that we claim perfection or purity. Churches where we claim that, you know what, we're sinners in need of the Lamb of God who is the only one who can make us what he wants us to be. He's working on and in us, and despite the problems of the church, in his eyes, we're beautiful. And nothing has changed his intention to marry us someday. Read Revelation and you will see it is the Lamb who makes his bride beautiful, radiant, and pure. Yes, I know bashing the church of Christ, the bride of Christ, is in vogue, but I can't do it. Oh, I acknowledge the tremendous shortcomings of the people of Christ and that we're definitely accountable to what he wants us to be. Who doesn't demand faithfulness from their spouse? And God wants faithfulness from us, and we are held to a greater scrutiny because of that. But we're his bride. And I wonder how it makes Jesus feel when people trample on her whether from the outside or from within. Henry Nowen spoke about how disciples of Jesus need to be attentive to the voice of God in a world which does its best to distract us and and, uh, get our attention into supposedly less important matters. And this is what he said. He said, first of all, listen to the church. I know that that isn't a popular bit of advice at a time, and in a country where the church is frequently seen more as an obstacle in the way rather than as the way to Jesus. Nevertheless, I'm profoundly convinced that the greatest spiritual danger for our times is the separation of Jesus from the church. The church is the body of the Lord. Without Jesus, there can be no church, and without the church, we cannot stay united with Jesus. I've yet to meet anyone who has come closer to Jesus by forsaking the church. That's been my observation, too. You know, churches probably suffer from an inferiority complex. We, uh, we figure we aren't big enough, we're not successful enough, we're not doing enough, we're not cool enough, we're not spiritual enough. And I think it's easy for us to lose confidence and just to figure that we're just a lost cause. But our identity is the bride of of Christ. God sent his son to buy us, to make us his own. God has not broken off the engagement. And can I just remind us that when the church is working as it's supposed to, when we are loving, when we are taking care of the afflicted, when we are worshiping and praying and serving others and bearing fruit for the Lord, we are a beautiful thing. beauty of the Bride of Christ often shines through the smallest, through the most ordinary things. You know, it's that hug on Sunday morning. It's that note of encouragement. It's remembering someone's name. Broken bread and a filled cup. Preparing that Sunday school lesson. That someone remembered your name. That someone prays for you. That someone listens to you. Something just small in the sermon. Some word that we sung. Some phrase from a song. Churches don't have to be flashy and glamorous. We're not called to be sexy. We're called to be faithful. Might look a little anemic and out of step with the world, but knowing our identity and our worth is not determined by the world. It is determined by our groom, who is Christ. And so Pastor Kevin DeYoung captures this well in a book called Why I Love the Church that he wrote to those who might be a little skeptical, a little down, a little critical of the bride. And he says, this is my final advice. Find a good local church. Get involved. Become a member. Stay there for the long haul. Put away thoughts of revolution for a while and join the plodding visionaries. Go to church this Sunday and worship there in spirit and truth. Be patient with your leaders. Rejoice when the gospel is faithfully proclaimed. Bear with those who hurt you and give people the benefit of the doubt. While you're there, sing like you mean it. Say hi to the teenager. No one notices. Welcome the blue hairs and the nose ringed. Volunteer for the nursery once in a while. And yes, bring your fried chicken to the potluck like everyone else. Invite a friend to church. Take the new couple out for coffee. Give to the Christmas offering. Be thankful someone vacuumed the carpet. Enjoy the Sundays that click for you. Pray extra hard on the Sundays that don't. And as it says in the book of the prophet Zechariah, do not despise the day of small things. I want to close with this. One of my favorite movies, maybe my favorite movie, called The Elephant Man. It came out in 1980. It won the best picture. It's a true story about a man named Joseph Merrick, severely deformed, lived in 19th century London. As a result of his grotesque appearance, uh, he's a subject of humiliation, of abuse, and of exploitation his whole life. And though Merrick was a deeply sensitive, intelligent man, people assumed because of his grotesque appearance he was an imbecile. A surgeon saves him, provides him a life of dignity, but he'd been beaten down all his life. He had to wear a cover on him when he went out in public so that people couldn't see him. He was so grotesque, the elephant man. Merrick loved the theater, and he was visited by a beautiful, very famous actress, played by Anne Bancroft in the movie, who had been in an acclaimed production of Romeo and Juliet, Uh, that he loved. She also sees something different in this elephant man. She doesn't see ugliness. She sees beauty. And on her visit, the two of them are alone in the room, and she gifts to him a script of the Romeo and Juliet play that she is in. And Joseph Merrick, the elephant man, is just taken by this. And he opens it, and he begins to read and mumble some of the, the lines to himself. And the beautiful actress begins to read the part of Juliet, In response, Merrick continues. He dares to read the part of Romeo. They go back and forth. And finally, they come to the place where Romeo and Juliet have to kiss. And Merrick begins to drop his lines. She continues reading. He hesitantly does the same. And then this beautiful, popular, glamorous actress, approaches this man who has been shunned all his life because of the way he looks and she kneels down and she kisses him and she says oh mr merrick you're not an elephant man at all you are romeo and he's just stunned we're not ugly to god at all we're romeo the one he's in love with, his bride. Yeah, I know right now we still have braces on and we still look a little underdeveloped and gawky and the glasses make us look funny and we have acne and our clothes don't fit right and we're a little slow and can be awkward and out of touch. But Jesus Christ chose us for his bride. Blessed are those who've been invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. You may kiss the bride.